Hello and welcome to the Law Life Balance podcast with me, your host, Caitlin McPhee. The Law Life Balance podcast is here to help drive much needed change in the legal industry. We all know that lawyer well-being is at an all-time low and mental well-being is a particular concern. Sadly, one in 10 lawyers under 30 globally are experiencing thoughts of suicide and that is just not okay. But all is not lost. There are so many incredible people out there fighting to make the legal industry a happier and more sustainable place to work. And it is my mission to track them down and interrogate them on this podcast. So in season one, I'm speaking to thought leaders in the legal mental wellbeing space about what we can do to make lawyers' lives that little bit, or even a lot, better. Welcome back to episode four of the Law Life Balance podcast. This week, I'm speaking to Chrissy Wolf, a former personal injury lawyer at Erwin Mitchell, who has recently left private practice to pursue full-time her interests outside of that. In this episode, Chrissy and I discuss her route into law. Now, Chrissy is someone who speaks openly about the fact that she didn't quite secure the A-levels that she needed in order to get a training contract. And so her route into law was a little more circuitous than some. But having secured her training contract to Erwin Mitchell, Chrissy decided to make it her mission to help other people like herself enter the legal profession when they otherwise might not feel they're able to do so. To that end, Chrissy set up Law and Broader, her YouTube channel, in which she shared her experiences and insights in order to help others. That has transformed into a very busy social media schedule for Chrissy. She's now popular across all major platforms and has around 50,000 followers. Just before the second lockdown last year, Chrissy decided to move to Dubai, where she's been making us all very jealous, sunning herself whilst the rest of us have been locked up inside in Britain. But that time away and perspective shift has really given Chrissy the insight that she needed to think about what she really wants to do. And so now she's pursuing her other interests full time. This is a really raw and honest discussion, as it always is with Chrissy, and we discuss so many things about what it's like to be a lawyer, a junior in particular, discussing Chrissy's own experience of burnout on what led her to leaving private practice in the end. I think there's probably something valuable in this episode for every kind of listener. So without further ado, let's dive in. Chrissy, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have this conversation. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm excited to be here, actually. Yeah, because, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about, talking about kind of work-life balance and well-being and trying to get kind of people to to live their best lives in the law. So I'm excited to be talking about how hopefully we can perhaps do that and make the legal profession slightly more accommodating towards that. But yes, everything is good. Uh, I'm over here in Dubai at the moment, uh, and it's just this week got very very unbearably hot so it's it's indoors from now on but I can still see the sunshine outside which is good for good for morale so it could be worse could be much worse could definitely be worse I'm looking out my window now and it's still about like minus 100 degrees outside and gray which is so depressing I'm hoping summer's gonna find its way over here at some point maybe you can send us half of your heat and then you can also go outside and we'll, we'll both be fine that would be ideal. Yeah, that would be perfect right now. <laughs> Amazing. Um, listen, so before we kind of jump into kind of the depths of the conversation that I'd love us to have, can you start by just giving us a bit of a background for people who don't know you? And I'm sure a lot of listeners already do. Um, why am I speaking to you, Chrissy Wolf? Who are you? What's your story? Tell me a bit more about your background with law. Sure. So 
Yeah, so my background, uh, definitely not a born lawyer. First lawyer in my family actually grew up wanting to be a vet. Um, but that fell through for various reasons, one of which being my terrible, terrible A-levels, uh, <laughs> which didn't put me in great stead for vet school, nor law school, in fact. Uh, but I ended up going kind of the back way into uni a little bit via uh, a foundation year, which then led me on to completing an animal biology degree. Uh, and after my degree, I realised that I was still going to have quite a hard slog getting into vet school and potentially going to have to do another four or five years at uni. So I started looking into alternatives and actually went to see a careers advisor because I had no clue what to do. I'd wanted to be a vet my whole life and went to my careers advisor who kind of picked out a couple of different things, research, didn't really fancy that, lecturing, didn't fancy that. And the third thing he came out with was law, which was something I'd never thought about. I had kind of this this idea of lawyers of being, you know, lots of contracts, paperwork, long hours, offices, suits, things that were just not for me. I was an outdoors girl. Like I loved mm. animals. I loved horse riding. You know, I lived in the middle of nowhere, just outside of London with my family. You know, this just did not seem like it was for me. And then he started talking to me about a friend of his who actually did injury and medical law. And he talked to me about the kind of things that they did. And because I was, you know, a bit of a science fanatic, I did four sciences at A-level. Um, I kind of like the sound of this and thought, okay, I'm going to give that a chance because that actually sounds a lot less like contracts and dealing with companies and a lot more like dealing with doctors and injured people, which actually I could get on board with. Mm. So I did a bit of research into it. Uh, swiftly found that my A-levels were going to come back to bite me. Uh, I had by this point got a 2-1 in my degree. So I thought I was kind of over the academic hurdles of life and redeemed myself. But as, as we all know, sadly, A-levels are still quite an important factor when you're trying to get training contracts. So I realised that this was going to be quite a difficult, quite a difficult project for me trying to become a lawyer. Um, I spoke to a couple, I had a couple of contacts kind of through my dad and they basically flat out refused to give me any work experience because they said I was wasting my time oh, wow. trying to get into law with my A-levels it just wasn't going to happen you know I should you know I was a nice girl and everything but I should pick another career Ooh. that was less academic <laughs> yeah so yeah I think that I mean being a little bit rebellious I think that kind of spurred me on to be even more determined because mm. I, I refused to accept that I couldn't be a lawyer just because I happened to to have a couple of bad years at school um so yeah so I persevered with it and I was quite the first round of applications I really just didn't know what I was doing to be honest I just scattergunned my approach and got absolutely nowhere that was my final year of uni and then I decided to do my GDL anyway I committed to do my GDL because I was determined that I was going to do this and my, my second round of applications on my GDL year were a lot more tailored because I was aware of what I was up against and I applied you know for only you know I think only a couple of firms actually that I thought were realistically within my remit and also that I wanted to apply to one of those was Erwin Mitchell which is the you know the leading personal injury firm in the UK uh, where I'd pretty much decided was where I wanted to work and I couldn't see myself working anywhere else having mm -hmm. you know done a few seminars and a few kind of workshops with them and just met some people from the firm it just seemed like that was where I wanted to be uh, so fortunately I did get through the process and managed to secure a training contract with IM uh, was a massive risk putting all my eggs in that basket but it did it did pay off uh, and I started my training contract with them in 2013 and stayed there for the best part of eight years uh, having only recently handed in well quit a few weeks ago actually so and I'm now uh, a free agent uh, doing kind of consultancy freelance work and also working on a few other projects which I'll reveal more details about uh, later this year. That sounds um, so exciting. 
yeah I mean on the side that's kind of my I suppose my day job career if you like um so once I secured my training contract I was really keen to kind of get my story out there because I think a lot of people who had my A-levels would just not have bothered a lot of people would have accepted what those contacts said and said okay Mm. fine listen to me I'm going to do something else so I really kind of wanted to tell the story of how I got in to a firm with really bad A-levels and how I kind of persevered, hopefully to kind of inspire some people who maybe were in the same situation or thought they were disadvantaged for other reasons, financial, cultural, social, just to kind of, you know, tell the story to say there are ways of getting around these barriers. Mm. So I started my YouTube channel to kind of, I suppose, do online mentoring. I was doing face-to-face mentoring, but there's only kind of limited amount of time you've got for that when you're newly qualified and dealing with all of those other things. So I decided to sort of morph my mentoring online via YouTube. Uh, And it was very slow start, I'll be honest. There wasn't a lot of mentoring going on YouTube. This was back in sort of 2016, 17, where I was certainly largely using YouTube for kind of working out how to fix my dishwasher or music (laughs) videos. You know, it wasn't really a go-to source for education at that point or, um, or information. It wasn't for me anyway. So it was kind of slow going, trying to kind of, you know, you know, broadcast to people this is what I was doing uh, and it was you know a trickle of, of followers and then Legal Cheek actually picked up and ran a story on it and then all of a sudden I got loads of followers loads of subscribers pretty much overnight and then it kind of took off from there so I started using other platforms so I'm now on Instagram Twitter LinkedIn and TikTok mm. um, as well as YouTube and then I started sort of doing events uh, coaching sessions uh, and I also do a more or less weekly Instagram live with influential people in the profession about various different topics trying to help students aspiring lawyers break into what is an incredibly competitive and difficult profession so that's kind of yeah so now we're at kind of 50 plus thousand followers which is insane Um, uh, and so it's just kind of kind of grown into this all-round hopeful resource hopefully a resource for students who can kind of turn to if they're feeling a little bit disheartened about the process uh, and just want a little bit more information help about how they might be able to break into it yeah listen I mean I think it's just incredible that you've managed to kind of do that alongside your training contract and then working as a lawyer I think you know I'm kind of at the moment still working full-time and trying to build up you know law life balance in the background and it's it's hard like it takes a lot of time and energy and it's draining but as you've just said, I think when you know that there's a bigger purpose to it, I think that's one of the things that definitely gives me that energy. Um, but yeah, that, that you've been able to balance all of those things, I think is just <laughs> really it's quite perilous. Incredible. It is perilous. Quite perilous yeah, <laughs> exactly. How do you, have you had any kind of, uh, I suppose, light bulb moments or um, strategies that you've put in place, which help you keep on top of everything? Because it really sounds like you have an awful lot on your plate. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be passionate about what you do, because certainly things that I was not passionate about or less passionate about fell by the wayside. They sort of Mm. got put on the to do list and just always managed to get shifted to the bottom of the to do list. And Mm -hmm. I I think the key is having a real passion. I think when I was first doing the YouTube channel, I literally did a video a week and that's pretty much giving up a whole day, to be honest. By the time you've planned it, you know, set up the video studio, if you like. Mm-hmm. rehearsed it a few times shot the video edited the video uploaded onto youtube pretty much a day so i was giving up oh, pretty yeah. much a day of a whole day of my weekend maybe every week for over a year yeah you know the best part of 18 months so in order to do that you've got to be you've got to be passionate you know you have to be passionate about what you're doing because there's no way you'd give up kind of one of your two free days a week mm-hmm. to do it if you weren't passionate so i think that was definitely 
you know, key. And I think the feedback that I was getting, you know, I had such lovely messages from students who were saying it was helping them. And the more I got that feedback, the more it kind of spurred me on to do more. So I was like, this is helping people. You know, this is, you know, this is fantastic. And people were saying, you know, they were going to give up or they'd apply for training contracts and they were going to stop applying because they were getting anywhere. And then they'd come back and say, you know, I did one more application because of your video and I got through the process, you know, things like that are just incredible. Mm. And I think the more kind of success and motivational stories that were kind of coming off the back of it, the more I wanted to do and kind of, you know, in, you know, increase the subscriber base really in the hope that it would reach more people. So I think definitely the good feedback was a massive driver. I think the more engagement you get, kind of the keener you are to, to do more and more. I think in terms of, you know, I think in terms of the day job, because I was still fairly new to the process, it's kind of it's kind of an exciting time for the first few years because, you know, no two days were the same in my job as well. You know, mm. things were constantly coming out from different directions. I was constantly kind of doing different things, learning new things, meeting different people. And that for me, you know, is that's kind of what I'm passionate about. I love I love doing new things. I love learning. You know, I love learning all the time. I'm a big reader mm -hmm. um, and, you know, upskilling myself as much as I can. So, you know, doing all of that at the same time, I definitely for the first few years, I didn't I didn't feel kind of burnt out at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think it was, you know, because everything was exciting and I enjoyed everything, even if I wasn't getting a lot of free time or I wasn't getting a lot of sleep, it kind of. I was excited by the whole thing. So it didn't really, it didn't really affect me so much. Um, so yeah, I think just kind of being passionate about, you know, all the things that I was doing definitely was, was really the key to managing them all and getting them all done was just really, really wanting to do all of them, I think. Mm. Uh, but yeah, a couple, definitely the kind of work-life balance suffered a little bit, but I think I kind of felt like LAB, which is kind of what my YouTube channel was called Law and Broader, but I've kind of shortened it to, to LAB. And that's kind of the brand name for all the other elements of it. So, you know, I kind of felt like LAB was my life and my hobby. So it didn't really feel like I was working when I was doing that. So, you know, I still kind of felt like, you know, I was refreshed and, you know, able to, to tackle everything. Um, yeah. So, yeah, being passionate basically mm -hmm. is, is, is what kept me going, I think. That's a really interesting point that you just made there around how, you know, when you're super passionate about something, it doesn't really feel like work. But then I think you have to be careful because there's a fine line, isn't there, between when suddenly your passion is no longer your passion because you're doing it all the time. And yeah. so can you can you talk a little bit about how you've now got to the point that you have got to of deciding to leave the law and pursue this full time? Yeah, so it was kind of a long, it was kind of a long process. You know, I think I talked in that kind of little spiel that I did just then. I kind of talked a little bit about the past tense and saying that how I didn't feel burnt out at the beginning because it was all really exciting. But then I think probably the last couple of years, it definitely did start to did start to feel like I was feeling burnt out. And having kind of done a little bit of reading about burnout, and you know, it, it seems to me that burnout is not necessarily doing too much, but it's doing too much of what you don't love and not mm -hmm. enough of what you do love because I find that you know there were weeks where I was at trial for example and I absolutely love being at trial it's my favorite part of my job and you know I would be there you know I'd be up at like five six in the morning prepping the bundles you know having conversations with counsel getting to court I'd be there all day and I, I remember a couple, yeah I was at this was a particular I think it's a two week well one week trial but I was in London for two weeks and after the trial finished, which was five, six o'clock, you'd had your debrief with client, had your debrief with counsel. I was then going to all other parts of London to shoot videos with, with people who were in London and doing podcasts because I was based in Birmingham. So whenever I went to London, I'd try and use that opportunity to meet up with kind of people in my network who were in London 
I was literally going to bed at like one, two in the morning, getting up at five. And that whole week, you know, I just buzzed the whole week. At no point was I tired. At no point I think, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I was living my best life at that point. But I think gradually, I think I found with kind of my day job that it was that my day job was becoming the bit that was going to the bottom. I, you know, kept going to the bottom of my to-do list, you know, the bit that I didn't, wasn't enjoying as much. Obviously I was doing it full time. So I was, I was doing it, but it was the kind of, when I woke up in the morning, it was the thing that I wanted to do the least out of all the things that I could do that day. And I think there are sort of a number of different reasons for that. I think I did a video recently about kind of imposter syndrome and how, I think when I first started my job, I did feel like a bit of an imposter and that everyone around me was really suited to this kind of corporate environment. And I just didn't really feel that because my whole life had been very different to that. You know, I had always the opposite of a corporate person, really. And I think, you know, I kind of almost continued to feel like that. I constantly kind of felt like I had a different skill set to everybody in the room. And I think, and, you know, I could really kind of bring that out in LAB, but in my day job, I was kind of finding that kind of grating on me because I was kind of required to do a lot of things which were not playing to my strengths. You know, I'm kind of rubbish at the kind of admin side of things. You know, I'm great with the ideas and you sit me in a room, I'll problem solve, I'll come up with an idea. But if you, you know, if you want me to put it in a memo or a follow-up email or, you know, do all of that, then that is the bit which I find really tough, you know, all of those kind of admin bits that are part of being a solicitor. And there was so much of that which I found really difficult and, you know, I just didn't enjoy really. And I think, I think it was really lockdown where I found that all the systems, we weren't really prepared to go digital. And I think it then became even more admin heavy because we spent a lot of time kind of searching for documents that previously would have been on files. Mm. You know, everything kind of became very admin heavy. And I think it kind of pushed me over the edge a little bit. I think all my court hearings then became online, which meant it lost a lot of what I loved about being in court. Um, I didn't get to see people face to face, which is also what I love, you know, mm-hmm. so I think I lost, I think that kind of the last, you know, just over a year, really, I felt like a lot of the parts I really, really loved about my job were kind of taken away a little bit by lockdown. And I think I just kind of got to a point where I thought, you know what, you know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to reach a point where you think, okay, this is not playing to my strengths. I kind of constantly feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not performing in this role because it's just not playing to my strengths. Um, so, you know, I just got to a point where I said, okay, you know, I think it's time, you know, I've been doing this for eight years. And for me, having done like a lot of self-reflection and personal development, I was like, I want to be, you know, I want to be in a position now where I am genuinely passionate about everything that I'm doing. And I don't want to have like lots of my day and time taken up by things that I'm not passionate about. And it was, it was tough. It was incredibly tough decision. I mean, it's the only real job I've ever had, to be honest, apart from, you know, working hospitality and Mm part-time jobs before that. My first job, you know, my only kind of real legal job. So it was huge, huge decision to make. Um, but I feel that it was the right one. Definitely. You know, I'm I'm a lot happier now that, you know, I'm constantly doing things which, you know, I do feel like are playing to my strengths. I can use my creativity a lot more. And yeah, I've got some things in the pipeline, which, you know, so I'm staying firmly in the law. I haven't, I haven't left the law. But private practice for me, I think. I mean, I say private practice. I've only ever worked for one firm in one job. So I can't necessarily say that the whole of private practice mm-hmm. did, that wasn't for me. But I think the particular role that I was in didn't suit my, you know, didn't play to my strengths, basically. And there's just yeah. a point where I think I think sometimes you have to treat your job almost as if it's a bit like a, 
a bit like a personal relationship you know if you kind of constantly feel you know if something's constantly making you feel like you're not good enough you know there's a point where you have to say actually this isn't good for my mental health because you know you're kind of not valuing the things that I do have and you're you know you're constantly highlighting the things that I don't have and if that Mm -hmm. was if that was a personal relationship you know you'd be going to counseling and your counselor would be saying you know I don't know if this is working for you so you know and your job is a massive part of your of your life and it is a relationship you know I kind of since I've left you know I kind of feel like I've you know gone through some sort of breakup you know because it was Mm -hmm. a huge part of my life and so now it does kind of feel like I've I've almost broken up with my job but Mm -hmm. I think you know you do have to think like that about your job because it takes up so much of your time it has to be something which is a mental health boost Mm -hmm. if it's a drain on your mental health then it's not sustainable and you're only going to do yourself more damage in the long term And I think the most important thing is is that you do look after your mental health Mm. So yeah, that's kind of the point that I got to really with it. So mm. yeah, a lot, a lot happier now. I'm so glad to hear. And also oh, I really love that analogy. And I think what you just said about burnout too resonates so much, you know, when you're, I find that really interesting that burnout is actually just doing too much of something that you don't love, because I mean, I know from experience too, that when you're doing stuff that you do love, that energizes you. And like you, you know, I can work really long hours and I can work consistently long hours throughout the week and I might feel a little bit tired but I do still feel energized in myself because I'm excited about what I'm doing and I think you know again there's a balance to be struck of course where you might start to notice some kind of physical signs that you're tired and you need to give yourself a bit of respite but it's very difficult from that kind of mental burnout that we're talking about so much in our industry at the moment um and picking up on what you said about burnout what do you therefore think, you know, if, if I'm a, I'm your average lawyer and I'm in a law firm and I'm really busy and I'm really stressed and I'm starting to experience the signs and symptoms of burnout to you, what advice would you give that person? And what do you think is the solution for burnout? Yeah. I mean, I think there's no kind of one size fits all answer for this because I think, you know, everybody's, everybody's made differently and everybody's energized by different things and burnt out from different things. So I think the first stage is to kind of recognize that you're burnt out and try and work out exactly what the trigger point is. You know, what is it, you know, when you look at your to-do list for today, what is it that's making you feel the most burnt out? When, which element is it that when you look at it, you go, oh, I just can't do this or, you know, I really don't mm-hmm. want to do that. So I think recognize, you know, what what is energizing you in your day and what is is draining you. And I think if it's a part of your job, which is draining you, then you've kind of got to pick that apart a little bit and work out why that is and whether there is a way of kind of either either doing that task in a slightly different way, which will make it slightly easier on you and feel less burnt out. And again, how you do that will be dependent on how you learn. So I, I quite enjoy I'm a visual learner. So actually I kind of prefer to watch something on a screen or perhaps listen, listen to something rather than read it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if I've got a task, which is a lot of heavy reading, for example, I'll be, I'll think to myself, you know, is, is there another way that I can do this? You know, can, can I listen to this somehow? Or can I watch something rather than actually having to do all of this reading? So you can kind of look at each thing and see if there's another way of doing it or you know, is there a way of rearranging your workloads? If you've got particularly, you've got a week, which is very heavy on things, which you know, you're not going to enjoy. Is there a way of spreading that out somehow? Mm. Can you delegate to someone more junior? Or, you know, are there any parts of that, which you could delegate to someone else? And if not, can you have that conversation with your supervisor to say, you know what, this, having doing all of this, this week is, is really going to struggle with my mental health. Can I push half of it to next week? So at least it's broken up a little bit. 
So mm-hmm. I think you have to have those conversations. It's not always possible to do that, but I think you have to kind of proactively manage your burnout as much as possible rather than just kind of letting it consume you. Yeah. I think you have to identify what the primary causes are and see if there's any way of kind of neutralizing those effects rather than just kind of saying, oh, I'm really burnt out because, you know, my job is really stressful or, you know, I hate my job. It's pretty, probably not your whole job. Mm-hmm. It's probably a few things of which there are a lot of those things in that particular time period. And if you can spread those out, it will probably ease your burnout significantly. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, there isn't a one size fits all approach, but that kind of helped me a little bit to say, okay, well, I'm only going to do, you know, a third of these things mm-hmm. this week, you know, and I am going to push some to next week, or I actually probably could delegate that to my paralegal. I don't really need to do that. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of being proactive about those recognizing, you know, what's causing it and being proactive about managing it. Mm. And do you think that there is enough space in the law for people to have those preferences? Because one of the things that I've been thinking and talking about quite a lot recently is how it sort of feels a bit like there isn't enough room in the legal industry for different personality types and different ways of working and preferences. Um, And I talk about this particularly when we're thinking about the progression curve or the progression tracks of the legal industry. At the moment, it's very much, you know, you're a good lawyer if you're a good lawyer, you become a manager. And if you're a good lawyer still, but you're managing, you then maybe become a partner. And it doesn't feel to me like there's enough scope in there for me to perhaps say, would you know what, actually, I like Chrissy, don't particularly like the admin side of this this job. And actually that's very draining. And particularly as a junior, when that's all that I'm doing, and I'm not getting to do the creative stuff, and I'm not getting the people-focused stuff, which is what energizes me, I am probably therefore more prone to burning out faster than some of my peers who do like that element of the work. Mm. And so when you start talking about, I mean, you've got lots of things in there, haven't you? But you've got work allocation, you've got different personality types, you've got progression tracks. To you, I mean, especially thinking about the junior end of the legal industry, do you think there's enough space for that? I think we already know the answer. And Mm. if not, what do you think could be some of the things that we could maybe do a little bit differently to make more space for, for that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I've, you know, from, from what I've said, you can, you can probably tell that, you know, I, I felt that there kind of wasn't a place for my personality type in the role that I was in, because it was, con- you know, I was kind of, I had a different skill set, but I was constantly being told that I had to fit into the mould, the predefined mould, you know, mm-hmm. well, this is, this is what you need to do in order to progress. And I was kind of beating my head against a wall saying, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm really not good at that. And I hate that. But I can, you know, a lot of it is down to figures, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was saying, but I can make money in all of these other ways. Look, here they are, you know, referrals and, you know, various other different things. But it was still, but it was very much, a, I kind of felt it was a bit like a computer says no thing. It was like, no, this, this is what you need to do. These are the boxes yeah. you need to tick in order to progress. And, you know, I just felt like I was struggling really to say, you know, I can do this and, you know, I can be a great asset to your company, but I can't do it within this mold. And that was the kind of, I suppose that was the point where, you know, I realized that there was no point in me staying in that role if I had to tick these defined boxes, which were going to make, you know, which were going to burn me out, basically, because they were not boxes that I, w- that I was good at. And they were not things that I felt like I was going to tick easily and be happy if mm-hmm. I ticked all those boxes. So I think and I think that is true kind of, of more traditional practice firms. I think, you know, one of my big bugbears is the billable hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, firms operate the billable hour and it's not so much the billable hour in essence, but it's more the billable hours culture. Yeah. It's more kind of using that as a measure of success and, you know, using those as kind of, you know, KPI. And that's kind of 
almost comes down to what what your value is to that company is kind of based on your you know your hours yeah. and your fees and that becomes you know for me again you know that was quite a toxic culture for me yeah. and again it's but as you said some people thrive off that some people absolutely love that so that's not to say that it's an objectively toxic environment but just for me kind of I'm much more creative you know mm -hmm. I love creating things and designing things you know that's where I get my joy from so it I found that it was quite difficult to kind of progress a lot I was going to have to kind of buy into that culture in order to progress and I think that is quite common amongst traditional practice firms but I think if you are kind of a bit more creative, I think there are other avenues. You know, I think it's not to say that traditional practice absolutely blanketly won't be appropriate for you. But I think people kind of forget that there is a world outside of private practice, too. There's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. to practice law. There's startups, there's boutique firms, there's, you know, more tech based firms who generally are more kind of creative, friendly and new firms emerging all the time, which do things differently. So I think you maybe have to look look outside the box a little bit and perhaps maybe have to drop some of that element of I really want to work in a traditional practice firm one of the big name firms I think maybe you kind of have to take a step back and say but is that really what I want you know what's more important the name above the door or my actual happiness and mental health mm -hmm. and having a job that I enjoy so I think you kind of have to to take that step back a little bit and kind of consider how much of it is your ego talking and how much of it is is what are you really going to enjoy how are you going to yeah. lead a happy life and you know I think success again it, you know you can kind of redefine success a little bit I think success is sort of objectively defined sometimes by the media you know as kind of working in a massive firm with your name on the door and you know kind of glass lovely glass office but that actually for me that wasn't my idea of success you know my idea of success was being fundamentally happy you know yeah. and having the time to do the things that I want to enjoy and all of those things and I think there was a point where that didn't tally up necessarily with staying working for a traditional practice firm. So I think there are options out there and I think you have to explore them. But I think if you are if you're in a role and you feel like that, I think the first step is to try and have that conversation with your employer to see if there is scope, because some employers are actually amenable to mm -hmm. saying, OK, let's try something different. Let's put you in a slightly different role, you know, if they want to keep you. So I don't think it's a case that you have to you just have to say oh this isn't working so I have to leave and do something else you know yeah. have those conversations see if you can switch up your role slightly um because a lot of a lot of firms do a lot of firms will do that so it's definitely worth having that conversation I think I think in terms of what firms can do better is I do think that the millennial generation have a slightly different skill set generally or a slightly different passions and I think sometimes the kind of manager generation doesn't really appreciate the value in that mm. and actually saying, yes, maybe this person isn't as great at doing all of these things, but actually they're amazing at marketing or they're amazing with technology and actually that can build us revenue in another way. So why don't we try and kind of amend their role so that they can bring, they can actually use the skill that they have to bring value to our business. And I think that is going to be a bit of a generational thing, to be honest. I think that it's going to take time to come through but I think it will happen over time because I think when our generation are kind of managers and partners, they will start to see the value in that and kind of more creative thinkers. So I, I do think it's I think our, you know, our millennial generation kind of almost had one of the biggest changes with kind of tech and social media. And that's why we've developed this slightly unusual skill set. And I think we've probably developed a passion for those things as well. So I think I think it will take a little bit of time 
for those roles to kind of or for those skills to be valued in traditional practice because traditional practice is so kind of heavy in perhaps older generation yeah but it is starting it is starting to come through definitely so I think it will take a bit of time but it is going to start to change I think in the short term you kind of if you do have that skill set you are creative you have to you have to demonstrate that and at the moment the easiest way to demonstrate that is in ROI you know what mm-hmm. what do you bring you know what can your skill set bring because sitting there and saying I'm a creative I want to be in a creative role isn't going to be enough you kind of have to yeah. say but this is the value that I can bring to the business with my creative side mm-hmm. and kind of you always have to kind of prove your case a little bit if you want to do something differently but it can it can be done and I think it will be appreciated more as time goes on but I think in, in the short term, I still think it's important to be true to your own skill set. You know, I think that if you, if you are slightly more creative, then you need to don't lose that. Don't try and fit the mold and lose that creative side, because actually, I think that's what's going to give you the edge in the long term yeah. is having that unique skill set. So don't, you know, don't try and compromise what you have to kind of fit a mold that someone's trying to, to fit you into to fit their company culture. You know, mm-hmm. go and go and, you know, find a role either within that company or within a different business where you can really capitalize and play to your strengths and use that to to succeed in your career. Yeah, there's a couple of really nice things that you said there that I wanted to pick up on. One is that you said for you, happiness is your priority and that's your definition of success. And yeah, I wonder whether because I, I feel the same. That's mine, too. But I know that that definitely wasn't my definition of success back when I went for my training contract and I was out exploring what I wanted to do. And back then my definition of success was almost, you know, it it was get the training contract, get the name on my CV, kind of do the best that I can and and then live my life when I've kind of done my two year prison sentence is kind of what I saw it as I suppose at the time. And I think that it's kind of all well and good us sitting here now with the benefit of hindsight saying, yeah, of course my priority is happiness. And I think that most lawyers, qualified lawyers a few years down the line would probably say the same. But I wonder whether we're not asking the right questions of students and aspiring lawyers before they start as to what are their priorities and are they thinking about these things? Do they have these questions in their minds? Because I think that those are things that we need to be thinking about. And, And so the other thing I wanted to pick up on was what you said, which I thought was quite nice, was this point around like, are we actually... Um, are we aware firstly of the skill sets that we have um, as you know millennials or for the next generation of aspiring lawyers and are we as you know employers asking them what do you think you can bring to this organization what do you what would you actually like to do and then making it an environment that uh, that works for them or saying to them well actually I don't think this is the right environment for you And I don't know whether we're having that conversation. One thing that I just wanted to ask, because I know that you've done quite a lot of research and a lot of talking and thinking around this is with the new SQE and this new way now of qualifying as a lawyer, do you think that that is going to offer more scope for lawyers to pick out those kind of slightly more creative ways of working and those more kind of skills based bits of training that currently I think we are lacking in legal education? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there. There's a yeah. lot there to talk about. Um, really interesting topic and something that I've thought about a lot, actually, because kind of as I was sort of coming to the end of my employment and kind of really getting to crunch time, actually, it's pretty much as soon as I handed in my notice, I kind of almost had this sort of immediate feeling of regret that I hadn't done it sooner, because kind of once you accept the fact that it's no longer your future, you kind of get to this point where you're like, right, I just want it to be over now so I can work on the next thing. 
And I kind of, you know, once it no longer became my entire life, because I was kind of working my notice period, I was kind of frustrated thinking, well, why didn't I do this early? You know, why did I go down this route? Yeah, and, you know, I started thinking about it. And I kind of looked back at where I was basically 10 years ago, actually, and thought, you know, if this was, what, what would I tell myself now? What would I tell myself 10 years ago if I, you know, if I could? And I actually think, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but you make the decisions you make based on the circumstances at the time, the information that you're aware of at the time. And I don't think there's any such thing as a bad decision necessarily because everything is a learning curve. And I think I had no clue what my skill set was 10 years ago. You know, you spend your whole life kind of almost institutionalized by school and then university. You have no time to explore what your skill set is. So I, I actually think, I mean, there's two ways you can look at this. Yeah, I think perhaps the millennial generation are slightly more savvy and a lot of people are kind of setting up businesses in their university halls and things like that. And actually probably those people are much more alive to potentially what their skill set is. And I think those people probably have enough self-awareness and kind of emotional intelligence to think actually let's look for a role which really suits those skill sets but a lot of students will not be in that position they will not be self-aware and that's through no fault of their own but it's just because they haven't had the opportunity to try new things and test what their skill set really is because that's you're just not given that opportunity in the kind of traditional education trajectory you're just kind of funneled into this process so I think you almost need to choose you need to choose where you want to train and what you want to do on the base of how you feel at that moment and not worry too much at that stage because actually that is kind of what I found through my training contract and through my first few years of practice I used it all as a learning curve to kind of really see what things I did enjoy what things I didn't enjoy what I was good at what I was passionate about and I used that whole period to really discover that and you know it's almost going back to my relationship analogy you know how they say it's actually it's actually a good thing to be in a toxic relationship sometimes because it makes yeah. you you know to date to date someone who's bad for you because it makes you realize what you want and what you don't want mm-hmm. so actually it's not necessarily a bad thing to be in a job which isn't right for you because by that process you learn what is right for you so I think as long as you are taking as long as you are you know being alive to those factors and those issues as you're going through your employment and make a time decision about when to change something I think that's the biggest factor is to constantly kind of review what your goals are in your life you know what's going to make you happy what is your goal because it might change you know your goal when you're going into or starting off your legal career might be to be partner or to be this or to be that and that's absolutely fine but two or three or four years later it might change and that's also absolutely fine Mm -hmm. things change as we get older and as we experience different things and it's fine for your goals to be completely different you know, two or three years on than how they were. But then you need to switch something up to make sure that you are constantly in line with those priorities, those passions, those goals. And I think perhaps sometimes when you when you get burnt out or when you're not enjoying your career, it's because you're kind of off, you're off, you've gone off key somewhere between, you know, where your goals are, what makes you fundamentally happy and where your where your job is, because you kind of haven't checked in to kind of really have that conversation with yourself about what you want. So I think it's it's really important to just constantly keep under review, you know, mm. where you want to be in your life and make sure that your career and your employment situation is is kind of tallying up with that. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think you know, there's, there's sort of any number of answers to that question, really. But I think it's hard to to ask those questions of people at an early stage as to what they really want, yeah. because actually it's very hard to know that. 
at the kind of graduate university stage, you, maybe you've never had a job before. I mean, you have no idea what work-life balance is, you know, because you've never worked nine to five or an eight till seven. Mm-hmm. So, and at that point, you're kind of ready to come out of education and think, yeah, I'm ready to attack this and work, you know, 100 hour weeks. That's what I want. And that that's okay to, to have that attitude mm. at first because there's no way of kind of changing that attitude without having the experience behind it. So I think, you know, no decision is necessarily a bad decision, but it's important to keep it constantly under review and make sure you make those changes if you feel like things aren't quite aligning the way you thought they would. Yeah, I really like all of those points. And I think essentially what you're saying is it comes back to the importance of mindset and knowing that at any given moment in time, you always have the choice. But I think one of the things that lawyers, particularly in big private practice firms struggle with is actually even having the time to do that review piece of how am I feeling? You know, I think the term that I keep hearing is like everybody out there is firefighting at the moment, you know, just fighting fires, putting them out. Next one pops up. It's like game of whack-a-mole. And when you're constantly playing that game of whack-a-mole, how do you have the time to notice yourself and how you're feeling and how you're doing? And when your norm becomes exhaustion, and just pushing through each day and survival and your weekend becomes about doing a bit of work and then trying to catch up on some sleep. Do you have the time to actually spend thinking about, Oh, am I happy? What would I change? What do I want? Is this aligned with my purpose? Um, and so I think those things for me, we need to create more space in every working environment for people to be having those conversations with themselves and also with other people. And I don't know that in many environments that I've been in or in many private practice environments, those conversations are taking place because there's a lot of focus on just getting through the bulk of work of which there is a huge amount and actually not so much on how is it, how is it working for the individual? And so I suppose if for you thinking back to your experience of private practice, daily life, Firstly, did you think that there was enough space for you to to have those conversations with yourself and with others? If so, was that you guided or was that guided by your firm? And if not, how do you think that more space could have been created for that to take place? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, a lot of interesting things to come out of that as well. I mean, I think maybe this is a bit of a harsh, a harsh truth to accept, but I think looking after your own mental health is is on you actually you know you have to prioritize that your employer could give you as much space as you needed to do that but if it's not your priority you won't use that time to look after your mental health you know I think it has to be a priority for you and if it is you will make time for it because that's what priorities are and for me it's always been a big priority for me to have that check-in time and I know I've got various different mentors who have been really, you know, really, really influential to me and, you know, helped me keep my cool in that situation, really, because I did feel like my day job was kind of constantly making me feel like I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to have people around me to say, you know, it's not that you're not good enough, but that, you know, that job is just not playing to your strengths. All of this stuff is playing to your strengths. You know, it's not that you're not good enough. It's just that you're not in an environment which allows you to, to show what you are good at and to use what you're good at. So I think it has to be a priority for you. You have to make that time because actually, yeah, I mean, it has to fundamentally come down to that. And I think one of my favorite quotes is nothing changes, if nothing changes. And that kind of starts with you. You know, if there is something that is not right in your life, you're unhappy or, you know, you're feeling lethargic or you're feeling anxious, you know, it starts with you to work out what that thing is because everybody's different and it can't be somebody else's responsibility to actually work out 
what's going on in your head and fix it because ev- mm-hmm. everybody is different. You know, you have to have that self-awareness and prioritize that time to work out what it is that's wrong and how you need to fix it. And then have that conversation with your employer to say, actually, this is what I need because everybody's needs are so, so different. You know, everybody's mind works differently. Again, there's no kind of blanket policy that an employer can kind of roll out to say, this is going to, this is going to make everyone's mental health better. You can't, that's impossible Mm -hmm. because everybody has got different things going on at home, different things going on in their mind. That has to kind of be on you to work out what it is that you need and ask your employer to accommodate that whether it's more time off, whether it's flexible hours, whether it's delegating work, whether it's doing work differently, that has to be something that comes from you. And I think that takes time to work out, which I think particularly is why juniors get so overwhelmed, because actually you're not, you're not sure what that is. You're not sure what you need. You're just completely overwhelmed, but you don't, Mm -hmm. you can't kind of identify any one thing that is overwhelming you. So I think, and it, it does, there's no kind of quick fix to that, but I think the more time you spend really kind of processing what you're going through and what it is that's stressing you out then the easier it is to manage because you can you can neutralize it step one is identifying the cause of the problem really and then you can Mm -hmm. look at kind of how you can fix it but it's very difficult for an employer to roll out policies that will help everyone you know because there were so many things you know my firm are constantly rolling out tea breaks and this and I just thought or extra days of annual leave and I thought an extra day of annual leave doesn't help because I will work on that day because I've got too much work to do you know, so it's, it's very, but other people thought, oh, that's exactly what I need. People who are mm-hmm. more able to switch off would benefit greatly from an extra day of annual leave. But yeah. me who never switches off, that's, that didn't help me at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to kind of have these tailored approaches, but that, you know, it has to come from you, I think, mm-hmm. to work out what it is that's going to make life easier for you. And it may be a bit of trial and error. It may be trying different things, trying a different sleep pattern, even something as basic as your morning routine or your mm-hmm. nighttime routine Not can basic. change your mental health. I, but I think a lot of people overlook that. A lot of yeah. people are incredibly stressed. Just think, oh, it's my whole job. Therefore, I should quit my whole job. But actually, you know, just changing small things, you know, having an hour of no phone time before you go to bed, or instead of waking up and watching TV, wake up and do your exercise first thing, changes yeah. your mindset, changes the hormones in your body, and can literally change your attitude towards the whole day. Yeah. So you have to kind of make time to kind of do these tests with yourself to, to work out what what you know what you need to make you feel better and then mm. approach your employer to say look this is what I need because mm. otherwise you know they're not mind readers they they can't know what every single person needs mm. and they can't roll out a blanket policy for everyone so it, it's a balance it's a balance between you saying what you need and an employer accommodating that yeah, I think exactly I think you're completely I can't right. even know what the question was now <laughs> I don't even care if we have because I think it's so important and I think this is, it's a really kind of nuanced conversation, this, isn't it? Because on the one hand, Mm. I completely agree with you. This is all about us taking responsibility for ourselves, which ultimately is the only thing we can take responsibility for. It's the only thing over which we have any control. And yet on the flip side, a a bit of pushback that you will sometimes get is, well, that's all well and good. I know what I need, but I don't trust that if I say that to my employer, that's going to be accommodated. I don't even know if that's a safe thing for me to bring up because if I do, they might think that I can't do my job or I don't want to do my job and then I'll get fired. And I've worked so hard for this that I'm not prepared to give it up. And I think that is where you get this conflict between people feeling like they maybe need something different, but they don't feel like that is something which is safe for them to express. And so I think, as you've just said, there is a there's, there are two things at play here. And this is where you've got top down and bottom up kind of management within an organization, you need a permission culture. So you need your top level management to say, 
okay, guys, we want you to be happy. We want you to be productive. We want you to do great work and help us out. And we're going to help you to do that. But you got to tell us what you need. And if you've opened that conversation, then you create space for people to come and say, oh, well, actually, what would help me is. And it's almost like what you're saying is, it isn't going to be as simple as rolling out a one-size-fits-all approach. It's actually going to be something that needs to be addressed on an individual level between managers and their employees, as opposed to even within teams. Although I know that within the law, you get teams that have quite different cultures, even within one firm. So I think that there's a huge amount of, of actually communication that needs to take place around this topic. And actually, what it seems like to me at the moment is that we more frequently shy away from them because we're scared of the outcome of that conversation. And so if there's one thing that I think needs to change, it's that it's the openness around having these discussions and also understanding that me asking for a little bit more time in the evening to do whatever it is I need to do to stay well, ultimately will benefit my employer or whoever else it is that's working with me because I'll be more efficient. I'll be more productive. I'll be a nicer person to work with because when I'm tired and I'm hangry, I'm not a very friendly person. And I think that's kind of a universal truth, right? And the point that you made around your morning routine is those small changes can have huge differences in your day, like absolutely huge. Is that, do you think that's a fair summary? Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about kind of having those open discussions, I think, and particularly what you mentioned about sort of top down, I think particularly as a junior, you feel like you're unable to have these conversations because the exact reason you said, but I think if you have people in senior positions who are kind of role models and advocates Mm. for that, you know, people who are saying, you know what, you know, I'm going to work from home this week, or I'm going to work four day weeks, or I'm only going to work mornings, or, you know, I'm going to, you know, any number of examples of kind of creative ways of managing their mental health. But I think you need senior employees to do that. So actually, they could, then juniors feel more able to have those discussions where they don't feel like it's going to put them at a disadvantage because here's somebody, you know, here's a partner doing it. So therefore, it can't put them at a disadvantage. Mm. So I think you kind of, or at least people to have those discussions. So these are examples of things that we can accommodate. But if there's anything else that you think would help you, please come speak to us. You kind of need that, you need that top down reassurance because yeah. I think sometimes just saying we're supporting you in your mental health, whatever you need sometimes it's hard to know to think oh yeah but does that mean you know they'll accommodate me having a slightly extended lunch but you know it's kind of a bit Mm -hmm. unclear you know when they say oh we'll accommodate your kind of well-being whether you know because you might think well what I'm what maybe what I'm asking for is totally unreasonable and I don't know where their kind of stance on reasonableness is it's hard for you to know whether that's really going to cater to you whether that you just you know you can ask for an extra five minutes or something like that you know Mm -hmm. it's hard I think I think it needs to come from the top down in terms of giving either examples or having role models of people who are doing things differently and who are looking after their mental health to make so you can actually see evidence of this kind of well-being, you know, well-being initiative rather than it just coming around via an email saying, you know, we're looking after your mental health because I think that that creates confusion. So I, I do think you absolutely need to have people in senior positions who are advocates of it and actually demonstrating practical ways of managing their mental health. And that the firm are supporting that. Mm. I think that is, you know, I think that is the best way really to encourage people to come forward and actually talk about what they need is to kind of lead by example, really. Yeah. I think that's that's really, you know, the, one of the things that I think could could be done better. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's really important is the point around giving those concrete examples, because as you've just said, 
you know, what, what does the reasonable man think about, you know, working to maintain our well-being? How, how do we know everyone's going to have a different standard? So I like that. It's, it's reassurance with objective examples. And those mm-hmm. two things in combination create that permission culture that means that people will feel they have the autonomy to put themselves first. Yeah. I love Said it. Said much more concisely than I did. Oh. <laughs> it's very much easier to summarize someone else's thoughts than to kind of come up with your own. Um, I think that is a really nice note to end on um, in terms of our meaty discussion. Um, but as you know, I have a series of rapid fire questions that I like to ask every guest at the end of the podcast. So do you have time for me to ask you those, Chrissy, before we close up? Absolutely. Fire away. Amazing. Okay. First one is work-life balance means doing a lot of what you love I think balance it should be heavily weighted in favor of doing what you're passionate about and I think when it comes to work-life balance you need to be passionate about your work because if you're only waiting for your life to start once your day of work ends you're going to have very little life to leave as a lawyer so I think your work also has to be part of your passion in order to really get that balance Mm, I like that that's like a legal specific definition Uh, If you could change one thing about the legal industry, what would it be? Billable hour. (laughs) Preach. That's a whole nother podcast. It is, honestly. Um, (laughs) Or just the billable hours culture, I think, from a well-being point of view. Yeah, noted. Pick that one up. Chrissy, what are you reading at the moment? Um, Lots of things. Um, I'm reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, I'm reading Think and Grow Rich. Uh, I'm not sure this really counts as reading, but I'm listening to Stephen Bartlett's podcast mm, a lot. So good. Um, and I've got a few other things on the agenda. Um, but yeah, those are kind of what I'm reading at the moment. Great. I love it. I'm one of those readers as well. It's like, which of these four books will I pick up at this particular moment of the day and read a chapter of? Yeah. <laughs> is it efficient? I don't know. Don't know. Uh, <laughs> don't know. We'll, we'll park that one. One thing that the world needs more of is? Yeah, I think empathy. Definitely. Mm. I think an awareness that you know other people are going through things that you might not necessarily be able to see and also an understanding that people react differently to different things maybe something that wouldn't be upsetting to you is upsetting to someone else so just having that kind of awareness that you know people are different and they're going through different things and they react to different things context context yeah everything and on the flip side of that one thing that the world needs less of is ego mm. I think I think you know I, I you know that and you know I'm saying that to myself as much as as anything you know it's really being able to tell the difference between what you actually want and what's your ego talking yeah. you know what the, what part of you is actually this is what I want to tell my friends rather than what I actually want you yeah. know it's kind of a, a bit of a head and a head and heart debate and ultimately you know to, to ultimate happiness you've got to be doing what you actually want and not just the things that you think will impress your friends and your parents and you know all of that thing so yeah ego less ego I love it more self-awareness less ego yeah money being no object what's one other career that you'd have loved to pursue uh, I'd have loved to have been uh, like an events planner or a wedding planner I absolutely love planning events and kind of design and like doing you know doing colors and you know just putting a whole package of different things together uh and you know watching people enjoy it so yeah something yeah something like a wedding planner I think that's your creative side coming out isn't it yeah definitely I think we've covered this one already but just in case there's another one you want to share a quote or a saying that you love is 
Um, I've got a couple written on my desk, oh. actually. Oh, oh, I've got a really good one. Okay, so I said nothing changes, nothing changes. Yeah. Which is, you know, you kind of have to change. If you want something to change, you have to change it. Because if you don't, then you're just going to go in a circle. <laughs> uh, cultivate some effing discipline. Uh, which is another one I've got written on here, which is, you know, you have to be strong about your priorities and make sure you stick to them. Mm. Um, also, the price, the price of your procrastination is the life that you could have lived. Oh, that's a good one. That's right. It hits oh, you yeah, right that in really there. It does, doesn't it? it? I've got it stuck on my laptop. And every time I procrastinate, because it's so true, you know, you look at that and you think I've procrastinated the last 10 minutes imagine you know what, what I could have achieved I, what, what, I, what I could have achieved yeah. you know if I've wasted half a day what could you have achieved in that half a day if you just got on with it it really hit, I don't know why but it really hits you when it you does you that. it may there's nothing like it to me you just get on and do something <laughs> I'm gonna have to stick that on my tv I think yeah love yeah. it so those yeah those are my my three quotes that awesome. I'm looking for at the moment sometimes they change I'll change them a bit but those are the yeah. ones Nice little personal mantra. I think I'm going to borrow one of those. Oh, God, yeah, that really did hit. Okay, two more. One day that you'll never forget is? It's going to sound a bit of a cliche, but definitely the day I got my training contract because I did not expect, I mean, I know nobody expects it, but, you know, honestly, I really didn't, given that all the odds were kind of stacked against Mm. me. I, you know, and I didn't think my interview had gone well at all. I'd already decided that, you know, there were at least 10 people in my interview who were way better than me and there are only about six training contracts available. So, you know, I'd pretty much written it off and, you know, I wasn't even expecting the call. So, I, yeah, I won't forget. And it was also the day of my, day before my sister's wedding. <laughs> oh, actually, no, the day of my sister's wedding. Yeah, the morning and I was doing her hair and I got, I got the call. Uh, so it was just a very emotional oh, day. Oh, wow. Um, but, Yeah. So yeah, definitely. It sounds like a bit cliche, but you know, absolutely, absolutely true. I really remember it so clearly. You're already the second guest to have that answer. So I don't think oh. it is that. I know, but I don't think it, I think what that shows is actually what a big deal it is for us. Like you work so hard to get that training contract to get it is like the absolute pinnacle of achievement in your life. And then to go on and struggle and find it hard and maybe get to the point that you leave if you're leaving for, you know, not the reasons that you are. I think that's one of the things that I really want to work hard to eliminate because yeah. it shouldn't be the case. And I think there's such a long build up to it as well. There's not many sort of days in your life which have a kind of three or four year build up, yeah. you know, to one single thing. And that's yeah. why it's kind of so memorable, I think, because of all the the lot the work that's gone into it I think that's probably why it's kind of sticks in your mind as such a such a kind of pinnacle day in your life completely okay final question one thing that you're most grateful for right now is I think having had the opportunity to move away during the pandemic actually is one thing that I'm so grateful for um absolutely everybody struggled in the pandemic um you know I, I I'm not saying I struggled you know any more than anybody else um but I think as a solo isolator it, it's quite tough as well I lived on my own uh, in Birmingham having gone from you know the most super sociable person ever never home constantly surrounded by people to then having to kind of be in four walls uh, on your own um I definitely really struggled with that so I'm grateful that I had the opportunity you know with my work being kind of fully online and fully remote that I was able to actually you know come and live in a place where things were relatively functional mm. actually because I think from a mental health point of view you know that you know I think I will always look back on this time as a massive kind of changing point because you know the time when I 
you know, quit my job basically of eight years. And I'm kind of hoping I'll look back on it in in five or 10 years time and say that was a really key moment. So Mm -hmm. I think this period has been key for a lot of people, I think, for different for different reasons. But I think definitely having the opportunity to to kind of experience a different culture, a different country, meet new people, you know, at a time when, you know, the world was essentially going to shit, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, is, you know, I'm so, so grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. I love it. I think, yeah, I completely understand that why you would feel that way. Um, and it definitely does seem from your Instagram, like you've had a bit more fun <laughs> than some of us stuck over here in the UK over the past few months. Yeah. I, I've, you know, I've never been very good at, at staying indoors. So for me, it was definitely a priority to to find somewhere that I could go where kind of, you know, my mental health would, would mm. remain, you know, positive. And that's not easy to do in a pandemic and there's a lot of fortunate circumstances that you know led to me being able to move where many many people were not able to so I'm you know I'm super grateful for that mm. amazing Chrissy this has been an incredible conversation as it always is when I chat to you um but before we just tie up can you please share with people who might be interested in hearing more about you and what you're up to how they can get in touch with you definitely yes yeah. so I'm on LinkedIn Chrissy Wolf. Uh, Lauren Broader is my YouTube, uh, Instagram and Twitter at cwolf underscore LAB and TikTok at the TikTok lawyer. So if you're interested in careers in law or just life in the legal industry generally, please hit me up on any of my socials as I'm usually giving some sort of insight into to what's going on on some of those. So yeah, thank you. I can confirm that she always is. So thank you everyone for listening. (laughs) I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Chrissy, it's been a pleasure. No, thanks for having me. A pleasure to catch up with you as always. We made it. If you stayed to this point, thank you. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And I'm always super grateful for your support. You can stay tuned with all of the Law Life Balance updates at www.law-lifebalance.co.uk, including the show notes and links to all of my wonderful guests. And if you particularly like today's guest, do follow them through their channels and reach out if you want more information. I'll see you back here soon for the next episode of the Law Life Balance podcast. <laughs>